0: Hello Buddhist Geeks, this is Vince Horn and I'm here today recording a monological episode, an episode where I'm just going to be speaking here myself about a new series that I'm kicking off or that has already, to be honest, kicked off and I'm just now recognizing that it's kicked off and wanting to identify it and acknowledge it and talk a little bit about what it is. And this series is called Metadharma, M-E-T-A, not meta as in loving kindness, but meta as in um, beyond. And so um, here in this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the Aspects of this exploration, this question, the series, um, where it's leading, uh, why it's arising, and my own kind of personal um, connection to the topic. And I think I'll start uh, from the personal first and then move more into the theoretical and the universal um, because I think that'll help you understand why this is such an important topic for me. And really this whole Buddhist Geeks project started because of and out of my time with a working for and studying with a meta philosopher named Ken Wilber. Ken's been a guest on the show in the past, but in the early days, um, I really didn't talk much about Ken and didn't really bring, explicitly bring in his integral metaphilosophy because at the time I was trying to find a way to explore some of the questions and some of the topics that I felt like he was exploring in his work, but to do so without having to use a lot of the philosophical jargon and technical language that's necessary to understand before you can begin to become fluent in his integral philosophy. For those that are aware of his philosophy, you know that there's a lot of different technical information. And like most philosophies, it takes some time to learn the basic building blocks of the theory before you can start to apply it. So I found myself frustrated with that situation and feeling like there could be a way of exploring what some of these complex ideas pointed to without having to frame things in terms of those ideas. And that general intuition led to an exploration of talking to different Buddhist thinkers and philosophers and even people outside of the Buddhist fold who are doing interesting work related. And it began my own quest of trying to understand all of these different perspectives which I was encountering in the Buddhist world in which I had encountered in Wilbur's work, and which he had really done a lot of um, he had done a lot to synthesize or integrate those perspectives into a larger framework. I wanted to just grapple with the perspectives themselves. And I think this made sense, um, given that I was in my early 20s and really just starting to become familiar with all of these ideas and deepening in my own understanding of Dharma practice. Part of where that exploration led me personally was towards studying a lot of Wilbur's uh, source works, Um, the actual thinkers and people that he drew upon in his own theories and that his own conclusions rested upon. One of them that I really um, enjoyed quite a bit as a, philosopher and psychologist and developmental psychologist named Robert Keegan. Robert Keegan uh, has published a book called In Over Our Heads. The Evolving Self was his first book. And then most recently, he wrote a book called Immunity to Change, in which he lays out a method for um, uncovering our hidden assumptions about the world, the way that we make meaning of the world. And Keegan's work really has to do with adult development of mapping out some of the stages of adult psychological development that come after some of the more well-known and immediately accepted work of people like Jean Piaget and Carol Gilligan, a developmental psychologist that explored the development of children. And he takes up where that those maps leave off and exploring the further reaches of adult development. What does it look like for adults um, living in contemporary societies? What kind of demands and challenges do we have on our own cognition on the way that we make sense of the world, the way that we interact with our families, our jobs, our significant others? And what kind of support do we have in that process? Um, And he found that we've really moved consistently as a culture into a period of modernity where there is a very consistent challenge across all domains of adult life in the modern era, um, inviting us to become what he called self-authoring, to become fully individuated modern humans that can differentiate between what we need and want and what others need and want from us who are able to come up with complex theories and simulations and mental models in order to understand the phenomena around us. And be able to, in some sense, take ownership and authorship of, of those uh, models and to really see ourselves as constantly improving our understanding of the world. So I was really into his writing and and into his work and uh, brought his Immunity to Change book with me on a month-long meditation retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. This was in 2009, so about 10 years ago. And On that retreat, I was working with uh, two of my primary teachers, Jack Kornfield and Trudy Goodman. And I was exploring on that retreat the practice of inquiry, of using questions as a prompt for discovery. And this was my first time doing that so intensively. And so throughout the day, I was working with these questions, who am I? What am I? And the last question I worked with was what is love? And all day I was working just continuing to drop these questions in, to hold them open, to inquire, to be curious, to open, to wonder, to work with whatever was arising, Um, coming back to those questions again and again. Who am I? What am I? What is love? And then in the evenings during that retreat, after dinner, I would pull out Robert Keegan's Immunity to Change and I'd start to continue to read through it and work through it um, because it was as much a kind of text about human development as it was a process of of uncovering our own hidden assumptions, uh, uh, our own current edge in development. And so every night I'd spend an hour or two working with his text and working through this kind of complex process of uncovering and questioning and flipping assumptions, and then asking new questions. And the whole purpose of that process was to lead to and unearth these hidden assumptions, these um, statements which describe what we thought or what we think the world is. And the idea behind that is that if we can unearth our hidden assumptions, then we could actually test them out to see if they're true. And if we can unearth them and see them, then we can also begin to disembed from them. We can begin to make them an object in our awareness, something we can see rather than something we're subject to. And in that process, which I described in, in the series a few times in the first few episodes, because it was such a central discovery for me, I, I really found these hidden assumptions, one in particular that really knocked me over, It really surprised me. I really didn't think that this was a hidden assumption. And that was that I should be able to resolve all paradoxes and contradictions that I encounter. That was one of the hidden assumptions. I should be able to resolve all paradoxes and contradictions that I encounter. And that's how I had been really working with Wilbur's work at, the, at that time, up to that time, is seeing this as a model which could res- help me resolve all sense of contradiction or paradox. It's not that contradictions and paradoxes didn't exist in the world, it's just that they should be able to be resolvable, that there is this way of modeling that can constantly incorporate everything into itself and make sense of things. If I just have enough information. And that's how I was relating to integral theory at the time. It's this grand meta model that can explain everything or that once it receives new information can incorporate it into itself. And for me, looking back, I realized this is in fact what Keegan was pointing to with his self authoring mind or his, modern, meaning-making, his fourth order of consciousness. And I had, through this process, started to uncover and unearth these assumptions, which I didn't hold to be assumptions. Part of the process um, that was so interesting to go through in testing these assumptions was to start, instead of trying to make everything make sense in terms of my models was to start to become curious and ask questions. That was one of the core ways that I tested my assumption. When I heard a paradox or contradiction, something that didn't fit, instead of trying to make it fit, I instead started to ask, well, tell me more about that. What's your understanding of that? And then I would just listen. And even though part of me did not want to listen, I wanted compulsively to try to take that disparate information and make it part of me and to correct them. Instead, I would listen and then be shocked and surprised to hear a sort of deep wisdom emerging from the other person. People often that I had dismissed as not as there being nothing to learn from or of having, um, an unsophisticated understanding. I started to see how arrogant and how, um, blind I was to other forms of information, other ways of knowing how I had to kind of make sense of everything in my terms. And as I went through this process of questioning, questioning, Opening, considering other perspectives, the whole facade of this sort of modeling fell apart. And I entered into what I would later understand as the postmodern turn, you know, of really questioning the fundamentals of modern philosophy, but doing it from inside you know, from this first-person experience. There's um, a pretty interesting philosopher named Jean-Francois Lyotard, and he wrote a great book on postmodernism and kind of, in a way, summarized what postmodernism is about. Which is that it's about this sort of incredulity toward meta narratives. It's about this sort of constant questioning of and unwillingness to accept any grand story about how things are. Because this sort of postmodern understanding recognizes that all stories, all narratives, whoever has constructed them, whatever group has come up with them, they're always going to be missing something. We're never capable of having the full picture. And so we can never model reality accurately. We can have as much information as we can And we can come up with as good a model as we can, given what we know, but there's always going to be something as human beings that we're blind to, that we're missing, that we've never even considered as a possible source of valid knowledge or information. So this is part of what defines the postmodern condition. And you know, postmodernity arose out of this historical period after the Western Enlightenment, where we really were looking as people for stories, grand stories that could explain everything, grand systems that could ensure our rights, systems like democracy, systems like communism, systems like socialism, systems like capitalism these grand systems that were designed to try to make sense of and coordinate all of our activities, our governance, our economics. And of course, this was also a period in which grand systems such as fascism also arose, where people thought that they had the answer to how to really make the world a perfect place. And that it only, the only thing that was necessary was to eliminate all of the people and things standing in the way of that. If we just got rid of all those people, then we'd have a perfect society. So you get alongside some of these really amazing new forms of governance and economics, you also get these new forms of dystopia, these utopias and these dystopias, these grand systems, these grand stories end up being great for some people. They end up being some people's utopia. If, if we could live in that reality, if we could actually make reality conform to that, wow, wouldn't that be great? But then that same reality, when made flesh, you know, when actualized, is someone else's hell requires someone else to die in order to live in that reality and so the postmodern turn in some ways could be described as a a questioning of the of the desirability of ever having any narrative become the dominant narrative for everyone and i found myself living into that as a As a reality for myself that I started to see, wow this these assumptions i've had about how to make sense of the world, they were so arrogant and they were so much missing certain perspectives and people's views on the world, and I was so certain. That I was correct. And I began to apply the same kind of thinking to my understanding of Buddhism and to Dharma. And Buddhist geeks really, in many ways, took a turn toward this postmodern um, exploration. In fact, my first guest on the series is Dr. Ann Glegg, who just came out with a book called American Dharma. And her whole thesis is that there is this sort of postmodern turn, this postcolonial post-secular, post-modern turn happening in American Dharma right now. Uh, One of the chapters explores Buddhist geeks as being an example of this. And looking back, I think this was a very big and important shift for me personally, but also for the Buddhist world in general, which started to kind of wake up from What David Chapman had previously called this grand consensus, this modern dharmic consensus. For many years, decades, um, many Buddhists agreed with each other about what dharma was and what fell outside of that modern dharma. And there was a kind of agreement, cultural agreement about how these things work. And that cultural agreement you could see is sort of connected to and tied to, related to this sort of self-authoring modern way of thinking. And so in a way, the postmodern is breaking free of that, questioning those assumptions and breaking the consensus, which opens up all kinds of new possibilities, but also throws into question um, the very nature of truth. And so it, it leads to also a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion. It can lead to, and as part of it, can revitalize in a certain way, I think. Uh, and this is an unintended part of postmodernism, but it can revitalize sort of fundamentalist attitudes. Fundamentalism, in a way, is a response to modernity. It's actually a modern Phenomena in you know pre-modern times, there you you could say there was no fundamentalism, because there was just people believing whatever local beliefs, or provincial beliefs, and religious systems and animistic traditions that they had. You know maybe those would come into contact with some other uh, group or tribe, but for the most part, you know these local beliefs were held to be reality not necessarily as some philosophy among competing philosophies that you had to defend per se so fundamentalism in a way and eric braun gets into this in the birth of insight in his book where he talks about how early burmese buddhism in the 1800s was a fundamentalist there was a fundamentalist reaction to British colonialism. The British coming into Burma, they felt threatened that their religious traditions were going to be um, taken away from them, and so the monks actually, some of these monks actually decided to, in a very big turn from tradition, to teach all of the lay people the Abhidharma, the high the high dharma's. And to begin to emphasize meditation and the first-person experience of dharma. Prior to that, that was not common. Monks, if, if anyone were to meditate, it would be monks. And if anyone were to learn the Abhidharma, it's monks. But here they were so concerned with and so scared of their traditions being wiped out that they needed to get them out. And so they changed how they were doing things. And this became... According to Eric Braun, this became the basis of the modern meditation revival, um, and and was itself part of this larger thing ca- that we call now Buddhist modernism. So, <clears throat> in the last few years, since uh, the U.S. elections in 2016, I've felt a. A further development in my own feeling and thinking around this, namely that where this sort of postmodern turn brought me was to a very confident ability to deconstruct grand narratives, these meta-narratives, as Leotard described them. And to do that with Buddhism and Dharma, to break apart Buddhism, to see that it was made of these same stories and that we could deconstruct them. We could pull them apart. They were being deconstructed. Mindfulness itself is kind of coming out of the deconstruction of American Dharma. And there's a certain kind of freedom in that and an ability to kind of take any model and pull it apart to see what it's made of. To deconstruct it. But I was finding in the wake of the elections that there was something about the skill which was no longer serving an important purpose, or there's some way in which if I continued to use the skill, I was somehow possibly helping to deconstruct the very systems upon which our society is currently structured, which on the one hand is exciting because I see many of those structures and systems as being problematic, like to the extreme, including capitalism, including how our modern democracy, in fact, we still have a modern democracy, how it works. So for me, and, and I'll include Dharma within this modern Dharma, modern techno-scientific dharma. And the problem that I started to see is that the leadership in, our, in my country was also attacking these things, but doing it not from a sort of high philosophical perspective, but doing it from below, attacking it from below, pulling apart the foundations of our system and having nothing to offer in re- in in replacing them nothing new and what i found is that i actually didn't have much new either to offer you know maybe there was a piece or two of, of new thinking <laughs> certainly maybe social meditation would qualify but for the most part i was engaged in this process of of pulling apart of deconstructing and without anything To replace these systems, I got, I started to get really concerned, really concerned that we could be pulling the legs out from under ourselves, societally, um, with our dharmic institutions. And that we actually need something new to replace what it is that we're destroying. A kind of reconstruction. And this is a term that Robert Keegan uses. He said, you know, when you're moving from this modern self-authoring mind to what in his model is called this self-transforming mind, there are two phases. The first is a deconstructive phase where you're breaking apart the old models, the old allegiances of thinking. And then once that has happened, once one has been able to deconstruct enough, then there is a process of reconstruction, of reconstructive postmodernism, or what my old mentor Ken Wilber called integration. And I started to become interested in that as a real possibility. You know, Maybe instead of just pulling things apart, I need to help put things new things together maybe that's our maybe that's our task in this new era is to begin to reconstruct new forms of dharma ones that we don't take as total systems but in fact we have to use and construct systems still we can't just point out their limitations we have to also construct new systems to help us navigate the new realities that we're facing as human beings in the 21st century, as Dharma practitioners, as meditators, as people who care about deep questions. And so I started to turn toward thinkers and people who are exploring meta-modern philosophy, I started to come back around to my old mentor Ken Wilber's work and start to see it in a new light. I started to re-engage with some of these developmental models, which I had taken to be totally naive and whose hierarchies were oppressive and based on models which are themselves questionable. I started to re-engage, re-introduce myself to those ideas and find that, in fact, they had a lot of useful explanatory power and that perhaps they would support me in engaging in new ways with some of these questions about... What does it mean to practice today? What does it mean to be a person who's living in the middle, in the midst of the sixth extinction event on our planet? What does it mean to be a Dharma practitioner in this era of climate apocalypse that we're facing? Where so many people are even denying the basic science around climate change. And some of these same people are denying the basic benefits of vaccines. What, what does it mean to live in an era where there's so much distrust for institutions and so much reliance on individual or small tribal beliefs, which from a certain perspective can be seen as a regression? not as progression, but regression. And in fact, I think it's being felt as a regression across the world right now. The rise of fascism, the certainty, um, seems to be coming in this vacuum of distrust and of postmodern critique. So I think there's something called for that's new and I think there are people who've been pushing this forward for a while. And I think it's a really interesting time to explore what a meta modern Dharma might look like or a meta modern response to our situation might look like. What a truly integral consciousness is, one that is able to not just resolve paradoxes and contradictions, but to understand better where these paradoxes and contradictions arise from. And Dharma is it's an interesting vehicle to, to do this through, I think, because already in the history of Dharma, we already have a story of Dharma going through monumental shifts and changes through to understand its own evolution and development. Um, One of the most interesting ways that the Dharmic traditions have done this is through the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. I was a student at Naropa. I learned about this model and that in the first turning, the Buddha in the deer park in Sarnath um, taught the Four Noble Truths to his old aesthetic compatriots and taught them what he had learned under the Bodhi tree. And this was, for the tradition, considered the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. Later, um, it's said that the Buddha, again, although here this is not the historical Buddha, but the sort of imaginal Buddha, the Buddha again at Vulture Peak Mountain in Bihar, India, taught the Prajnaparamita teachings on emptiness and compassion. A new turning of the wheel of Dharma, the second turning which is associated with the philosophy of Nagarjuna and of the Mahayana tradition. And then later still there's the teachings of the Buddha again and the teachings on Alaya Vijnana, the basis consciousness, the Yogacara school, mind only, and the teachings on Buddha nature, the Satakadagarbha teachings that are associated with Asanga and his half brother Vasubandhu. This is a later development in the kind of theoretical and practical basis of Dharma, which became the basis also of Vajrayana Buddhism. And so here we have a a kind of story of these different turnings of the wheel of dharma and the way that each turning needed to reinterpret through, always through the teachings of the Buddha, interestingly, tying it back to the tradition, but reinterpreting the basic meaning and truth of dharma. So in a way, it was a way of transcending previous understandings while still making them part of the tradition. So it's totally within the history of these this Buddhist Dharma tradition to transcend Buddhist Dharma, to go metta on it. And I think in that sense, we can have one foot firmly planted in the past and in tradition. While also having one foot moving forward into the unknown. And that this exploration of metadharma is that it's an exploration of what it means to both be a conserver and an adapter, both to oscillate between these perspectives, to not assume that we have all the knowledge we need right now to mount a response to our current conditions and thus. The conserver impulse to go back and to rediscover, to refine things from the past is extremely valuable. It's one of the main ways we can um, adapt and innovate to our current situation. And yet we do need to adapt. We do need to change. We can't just pull something out from the past and assume that we can make Buddhism great again. One of the um, interesting ways that metamodernism is described by some of the philosophers behind this philosophical movement is that there's a shift from the postmodern to the metamodern from ironic cynicism to sincerity. Irony is used very heavily in the postmodern era To try and, in some sense, to create distance, a kind of removal and a kind of cynicism that is associated with that. You know, we're all living in a capitalist society, but we're also very hyper ironic about that. We can be cynical about it and ironic about it and make fun of ourselves even as we participate in these systems. But it's interesting because that irony, it maybe makes us feel better about ourselves or about our situation. You know, here I am having to participate, but I'm not really fully participating. I see the joke. In the modern, there's a move towards sincerity. What does that mean? What would that mean in terms of Dharma practice? I think part of what it means is that awakening, rather than being something which we can see is just a repository for all of our ideals, and not even that, there's all these competing ideals. So, how could any one awakening possibly be accurate? But that awakening and enlightenment bodhi is and could be something which we engage with in a sincere way. That it really is possible to awaken the heart, to awaken collectively. And that we may not know exactly what that looks like. We may not have a map that describes exactly where we're going, and yet the journey itself may be the only thing that matters. And not just for our own personal well-being, which is kind of the cynicism, I think, of mindfulness, you know, that if we just resolve our own personal problems, that's enough. But no, that actually Dharma needs to be a response to the problems of the world, to the suffering of the world the Bodhisattva vow can be engaged with in a sincere way. What does it mean to help all beings awaken? What are we awakening from? What are we awakening to? For me, part of the shift from this sort of multi-perspectival pluralistic, postmodern thinking where we can start to see all these multiple perspectives and start to value them in their own right, part of the shift is in saying, actually, we have to start to prioritize these perspectives differently. We actually have to start to say that, in fact, this perspective and that perspective are more important right now It's more important, for instance, that we respond to the climate apocalypse than it is to quibble over our political allegiances. That if we don't respond to the existential threats that are right in front of us, we have no future. That some of these threats are bigger than others and require a bigger response, and that we can't just respond to everything all at once. We can't just treat every problem as being equal, and all having the same causes, and all being resolvable in some magical, idealistic way, if we just get rid of patriarchy, or whatever. That in fact, our problems are deep and interlinked, yes, but some of them are more urgent than others. So I think the move from the postmodern to the metamodern is a move from being paralyzed by multiple perspectives and not being able to pick one perspective over another toward beginning to be able to construct new fluid meta-perspectives, new fluid stories that allow us and enable us to respond better to the situations that we find ourselves in and to respond better to the, situ- to the problems that are most urgent. How do we live in a, in a period of time in which our entire social systems may themselves collapse? The second episode in the series is going to be with Daniel Thorson on the Dharma of Collapse. A lot of climate scientists think that it's already too late, that there's already enough carbon in the atmosphere and the rate of which isn't changing, that we may see the breakdown of our agricultural systems enough so that the nation state, some nation states could collapse. There's enough feedback loops which are feeding on themselves that we could be looking at an imminent societal collapse. What would that mean in terms of practicing Dharma? What would that mean in terms of how we live? What does that mean in terms of awakening? These are the questions I want to explore in the series on metadharma. What are the teachings of the Buddha today? How can we take a perspective on those teachings that's that's new and different, a new turning, perhaps, of the wheel of dharma? How can we realize ourselves differently, our no-selves differently? so that we become a response to the suffering of the world rather than offer band-aids or offer even worse techniques and tools to help anesthetize people in the middle of the most dire situation that humans have ever faced. Well, the world is ending, but at least I can breathe through it. Or the world is ending. There's nothing we can do. Just giving up. I knew it. Humans are so terrible. Of course, we're going to kill ourselves. Of course, we're not going to be able to sustain this number of people and resources. Of course, capitalism is going to eat itself and eat everyone else. Of course, You know, of course, of course, of course. This kind of hyper-cynical response. I want to read from the Meta-Modernist Manifesto of Luke Turner, his eighth point. He says, we propose a pragmatic romanticism, unhindered by ideological anchorage, thus Metamodernism shall be defined as the mercurial condition between and beyond irony and sincerity, naivete and knowingness, relativism and truth, optimism and doubt. In pursuit of a plurality of disparate and elusive horizons, we must go forth and oscillate. So I want to continue to explore what is it that could exist between and beyond. You could say the middle way, irony and sincerity, relativism and truth, optimism and doubt, naivete and knowingness. What can happen if we make ourselves the middle way? What bridge might we become? And what does the world need from us now? After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network.com And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.